Friends, it's bittersweet to be in Genesis chapter 4 right now. We have spent seven months working through Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4. And I hope you, like me, have had just our vision of God expanded, our vision of God's redemption plan expanded, just by spending our time in such a foundational text. So for the last time for this season, we're going to turn to the book of Genesis, the very first book, and we're going to start in verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. Now, time out. Where did Cain get a wife? I thought it was Adam and Eve, and I thought they had Cain and Abel, and I thought Cain killed Abel, and I thought there were just three people. So where does Cain find a wife? Well, we said from the beginning that God made all people just through Adam and Eve. There weren't other families. There wasn't another pattern for people. And this is reiterated in the New Testament. In Acts 17, 26, God made from one man every nation. So every nation is coming out of Adam and Eve. So where does Cain get a wife? Well, chapter five tells us that Adam and Eve had other children besides the one they're named. So Cain could have married a sister. We also know that Seth and maybe Abel had children as well, and so Cain could have married a cousin. That's why I think Cain was so afraid that if he went out and someone found him, they would kill him, because they wouldn't be a stranger who had never heard of Cain. They would have been a family member who would have sought his blood, and that's why he was so afraid to leave. So, so there's intermarriage within the family now, of course, but later in God's law, he forbids that when it's no longer necessary. So minor point, that's where Cain gets his wife. Cain has a wife. She conceives and bears Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And to Enoch was born Arad, and Arad fathered Mahuyael, and Mahuyael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. Ada bore Javal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Juval, and he was the father of those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tuval Cain, and he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tuval Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Let's pray. They did begin to call, and they continue to call upon the name of the Lord, even now, that you would give us spiritual eyes, that you would give us open hearts to hear what you have for us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the church's greatest early theologians, Augustine, wrote a massive book, The City of God. Anybody read The City of God? 700-page philosophy text. We have a couple of people in here who have actually read it. 
When Devin, our assistant pastor, graduated seminary this spring, and I came to him and said, Devin, you can finally read anything you want to read, and seminary doesn't give you a reading list. What do you want to read? Harry Potter, girl with the dragon tattoo, like what is it? He said, Augustine, city of God. I'm going right back to the fire hose for more. Well, the book is brilliant, says Devin, and the few of you that read it, because, because Augustine is writing about the city of Rome and he's distinguishing between the city of God and the city of man. And he's saying those aren't locations, those are whole worldviews and philosophies that we bend ourselves around one or the other, which is exactly what we've been saying in this text as humanity begins to divide itself, those who resemble and follow and worship who will be the seed of the woman and those who align themselves and look like and practice what falls under the seed of the serpent. You have the city of God and the city of man. You have the seed of the woman and you have the seed of the serpent. When Cain was first born, we probably thought, like Adam and Eve first thought, could this be that gospel seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15, could this be the one to take away the sins of the world? But we were mistaken. He murders his brother and he looks more like the serpent than he does the seed of the woman. Well, that family begins to grow and another family begins to grow And so between Genesis chapter 4 and Genesis chapter 5, you have two family trees that are sprouting out from Adam and Eve, and they're heading in two different directions. And I think that the text wants us to pay attention and see, just as Cain was different than Abel, so Cain's line is going to be very different than Seth's line. Okay, you can draw this later, but follow me. Because in Genesis chapter 4, we get the lineage of Cain through Adam, and we get seven generations listed there. And then on your own time, if you read Genesis chapter 5, you have Seth's line, and you've got 10 generations listed there under Seth. So you got Adam up top, then you got Cain, you got Seth, and you've got seven generations and 10 generations. And I think the Bible wants us to pay attention to the two because we get two clues here. Number one is, if you count the seventh from the line of Adam through Cain, you get to the murderer Lamech. And we're going to talk a little bit more about him. Actually, in Hebrew, his name is something more like Lamech. But I'm not going to say that. I'm going to say Lamech, okay? So you get the murderer Lamech on Cain's side. When you count seven from Adam through Seth, you get a man named Enoch in chapter 5, verses 21 to 24, who was a righteous prophet, and God did something remarkable. He didn't die, but he was taken up into heaven. Lamech and Enoch, you couldn't have two more different people in these genealogies. Another clue is that in both genealogies, only one person gets a speaking line in each. And in each genealogy, the person that gets to talk is named Lamech. You got Lamech in the one, and you've got Seth Lamech in the other. And we heard what the first Lamech says. He boasts and brags that he murdered somebody, killed somebody in vengeance. But then when you get to the second Lamech in Genesis chapter 5, verse 29, he's the father of Noah, 
And when they give birth to Noah, he says, out of the ground that the Lord cursed, this one shall bring us relief. You hear that Genesis 3.15 promise? Maybe Noah is the seed of the woman. Do you see how the Bible is laying out those two lines for us? And do you see how it's showing us, hey, there's a contrast here. We're not just talking about individuals. We were talking about individuals with Cain and Abel, and and that's significant. But we're no longer just talking about individuals who follow the Lord or resist the Lord, but whole families. God moves through families. And as we can all attest, families gain momentum. You find an unlikely conversion back in a family tree and that convert begins to change things about their life and their habits and their family and their parenting and all of a sudden you have these compounding effects that will bless generations to come. And on the opposite side, when you have someone back in a family tree who resists the Lord and takes on an addiction and follows a certain path and, and will not worship, all of a sudden that compounds itself with terrifying effects on future generations. A lot of us in this room limp or live in the light of the blessing or the curse of a family that was headed in one direction or another. Now, this is not a guarantee. Christians aren't guaranteed Christian kids or Christian grandkids. There's no magic formula. Every generation is dependent on God's grace and God's power. It's not a guarantee. It's a principle. This is how God operates. This is how he loves to operate. He's not just here for you. He's here for the entire family and the generations that will follow you. He is a God of families. He's a God of generations. So let's watch these family lines grow into the city of man and the city of God. A family organized around man and self and a family organized around God. Well, the text clearly gives most of its time to the city of man, most of its time to those who are resisting God. And and you could almost like uh, organize this entire city of man section around that three-headed dragon, money, sex, and power. Those appear in our text, and none of those three are evil in and of themselves, right? There is nothing inherently wrong with money or sex or power. Those things in the hands of believers are beautiful, life-giving, liberating things, but they can be bent and warped and used for incredible evil, and we begin to see that. Number one, you have money. Now, the text doesn't talk about money, but it talks about civilization flourishing and where civilization flourishes and where technology advances, then all of a sudden you have wealth that follows that. And so Enoch founds the first, or Cain founds the first city, Enoch. And then you hear about his descendants that start making technology and making culture. They do tent making, livestock, music, instruments, metal tools, and weapons. And again, praise God for civilization. Praise God for technology. We're all sitting under lights and air conditioning, praising God that technology is a good and a wonderful thing. It can be used in wonderful ways and it can be used in horrifying ways. For example, is the internet a good invention or is it a bad invention? 
Some of us have built our entire careers and have supported our families on the internet. And some of us in this room have lost our souls on the internet. It's not inherently one or the other. It means everything what is happening in the hands of the holder. So the text doesn't really go into a lot of detail here, except that it's showing us this is being done in the line of Cain. And so all of a sudden you have this dark shadow casting over civilization and affluent, self-indulgent, self-serving city. And you get the impression, if this gets bigger and richer, this can get really bad really quick, right? It compounds and it gains momentum. The New Testament will simply refer to this as the world and worldliness. That's how it talks about this. When John writes in his letter, do not love the world, of course he doesn't mean do not love planet Earth. Yes, we love planet Earth. And it doesn't mean don't love human beings. And it doesn't mean don't love technology and culture in and of themselves. When he writes that, he means don't love culture's godless pursuit of itself. Anything that smacks of worldliness, anything that smacks of being self-serving to the disadvantage of others, anything that smacks of the Tower of Babel, that is the thing not to love. And so he writes in 1 John 2, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. 1 John 2, 15 through 17. So you have money. And you have money in the hands of the city of man and that can get bad quick. But number two, you have sex. Listen to this. God gave Adam a wife. And God provided Cain and Seth a wife. But when you march down the family line to verse 17, all of a sudden things change and Lamech took two wives. Why take one wife when you can have two wives? And just like that, marriage and sexuality is bent. God created a man and a woman to join in happy, holy, full, unashamed union. They are there, we said from the beginning, to show forth his image and to make babies to fill the earth and to co-rule and co-cultivate the earth for marriages to look like the gospel. I'm going to have a husband that looks like Jesus who's going to lay down his life for his wife and I'm going to have the church look like the bride who is going to receive that love and serve and submit in kind. But man immediately feels the tremendous pull and possibility of sexuality without any of the constraints that God has made to go with it. Church, have we not all felt the devastation of a sex that serves man and not God? Is there a soul in this room that does not bear the marks, the wounds, the regrets of a bent sexuality? Is there a person in this room that doesn't need a brother or sister attending to us saying, 
Are you okay? Are you doing well in this area? What is the Lord doing for you? I read something on Barna Research. I'm not sure if I believe, but it said that more evangelicals looked at porn this week than read their Bibles. Let that sink in for just a minute. Only a fool would say, well, that's not us. We're in the minority and we're doing something different. But a very sober church and very sober elders and very caring believers would say, I want to pause over this for a minute and I want to be in people's lives and I want them in my life. We are children of our parents. Generational sins compound. Once Lamech pushes the boundary of sex, there is no stopping the sexual revolution. Think about Genesis alone. You can't even get outside this book before there is rampant sexual sin in Noah's day. Noah himself succumbs to it. You've got Sarah versus Hagar. You've got Leah versus Rachel. You've got Sodom and Gomorrah. Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Judah and a prostitute. And that's just the book of Genesis. That's book one of 66 books. You can't get outside of it without hearing those things. And by the time you get to Leviticus, just three books in where God begins to lay out laws of sexuality, every single thing that we practice in our culture today is already mentioned in the book of Leviticus. We have not even invented any new way to bend sexuality or gender identity that didn't already exist in the earliest books of the Bible. And there are things in Leviticus that would make a cold-blooded, unbelieving American blush to think about. Today we would blush, tomorrow we won't, but it's already there. Those who think this is an archaic, old, dusty book that can't keep up with our sexual creativity, they just haven't read the thing. It knows once this thing is bent, it starts to compound and compound and gain momentum with horrifying results. You've got money, you've got sex. Number three, you've got power. And this is the low point of the chapter, murder. Lamech gets in a fight, we don't know the details, but he kills a young man. You might be able to translate that a youth or even a teen. And maybe when he killed him, he was using one of the tools that his son had made, an instrument, an iron instrument that his son had made. And as one commentator put it, you know, Cain succumbs to murder, but Lamech exalts in it. Cain kind of found himself in a situation where he responded in murder, and, and Lamech exalts and celebrates his murder. He's proud of himself, and we are learning very quickly that sin will not be hid in the city of man. We're going to sin here and we're going to sin boldly, and we're going to celebrate our sin, and we're going to advertise our sin, and we're going to condemn anyone who says we can't do our sin, and we will be a people in the city of man, Genesis is saying, where when you do what you want to do, I say that is perfectly appropriate. Please pursue that to the fullest, and let no one stop you in it. Bent wealth, bent sex, bent power, 
will claim many, many more households and generations in the lives to come. Evil compounds, generational sins gain momentum, unchecked greed, lust, hate in parents brings terrible fruit on generations to come. I wish it weren't so. And I wish we didn't limp because of it. But it is, and we do. And knowing our story will be part of our healing to know the ways and the reasons I walk with a limp. There's a word of hope here at the end of our passage, which will serve as a word of hope for the end of this entire Genesis series. And at first glance, it is so small, so quaint, so passive. All we hear is that Adam and Eve get together and they have another son, Seth, and that Seth has a son, Enosh. And then verse 26, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And after knowing what I know about Genesis 3 and 4, and all that is to come for the rest of Genesis, and all that is to come for the rest of Scripture, and that all that's going to come through the halls of history and into our lives in the presence, I want to read that verse and shout, big freaking deal. Big deal. The world is going to hell in a handbasket. The rich crush the poor. Sexual sin is rampant. The greatest killer of man is man. And you're telling me that a couple of people in a couple of families begin to have a couple of worship services? And I'm telling you, that looks so small and insignificant. It looks like a mustard seed. And it looks like a teaspoon of leaven. And it looks like a baby in a manger. Like, what could come of that? But we're being welcomed into the marvelous, surprising, subversive wisdom of God in the city of God. Yes, generational sins compound and gain momentum on down family lines with horrifying results, but praise God His grace moves downhill too. Do you hear that, church? His grace moves downhill and gains strength too. A kingdom mustard seed becomes a kingdom tree. And a teaspoon of kingdom leaven can leaven the entire dough. And a baby born in a manger in backwater Bethlehem can be the hinge of salvation history that turns the world upside down. Our God is a God of small beginnings with huge stupendous, world-reaching endings. He'll do that for the cosmos, and he will do that for us. Church, do you know there's not a soul in here too small for God's attention? He sees and touches every soul that is here. 
And there's not a, a family or a generation too twisted or tangled to not feel his grace and his blessing in generations to come. There's not somebody who has lived so long in the city of man, they can't now turn and be welcomed with open arms into the city of God and the grace that he will give there. Because Genesis 1 through 4, these four chapters preach the gospel in this way to believer and unbeliever alike, that each of us are fearfully and wonderfully made. And even though we're made to worship God, all have sinned in Adam and fall short of the glory of God. But we're not even done rebelling before God in Genesis looks like the prodigal's father jumping off the front stoop and running towards his creation, throwing his arms wide to welcome us into his family, to kill the fattened calf and put the robe on us to dress us and to clothe us. Lamech walked around crowing that he would take a 70-fold vengeance on anybody who messed with him. And I think Jesus remembered that when he said there is a forgiveness to be had in this kingdom that is 70 times 7 you can't out the grace of God that is available for us and he won't just be content with you and your individual soul we don't come into the kingdom one by one by God's economy. He brings the family. He brings the generations. He brings the grandkids. He brings the neighbors. He brings us together so that all together with one voice, black, white, rich, poor, old, young, together, a people will call upon the name of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, let us call. Let us call loudly. Let us call joyfully. Let us call lovingly so that others, friends and neighbors will hear. Let us call with honesty that you are a real God who addresses real sin in my heart, exposes real things in my family to heal and restore. Let us call with enthusiasm. Let us call with grace. Let us call with a spring in our step. Let us be a people who calls upon the name of the Lord because you answer every single time with grace and love and kindness. Let us be that people we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.